0: Listener production, punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. (laughs) In today's episode, I'm interviewing Sally McManus. But you'll only hear my voice because my bloody co-presenter, Catherine Fox, is swanning around Europe at the moment. Uh, So, I'm here holding up the fort. Mind you, what could be more fun than interviewing Sally McManus, who has exploded onto the public stage as the first female secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions? She is easily one of the most powerful and influential women in Australia and she is not taking a backward step. (laughs) Sally, you lead an organisation that represents almost 2 million Australian workers. Now that's some clout. How do you feel
1: about wielding so much power? It's funny because in the end, I think I reduce it to something much smaller because I do have in my mind, okay, it's 2 million workers, but I have this little thing that I do consciously and after a while it becomes unconscious. And that's when I'm doing something really hard. So a negotiation or I'm doing an interview with someone who's really tough, not you, of course. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I have in the back of my mind the faces of uh, workers that I've been with recently. I try and remember them and I try and remember that they're behind me and with me. And I think that that makes a difference when you go into negotiations. I learnt that from an uh, old timer, actually, from an elder in the trade union movement, Tom McDonald. He always said he always thinks when he's going to you know battle and something hard, just remember that um, in his case, It was all men, all the boys are behind you, like literally. And so I I sort of use a similar device. So you personalise it? I do, I do. I suppose the faces could be interchangeable, um, but I always remember it's not about you, it's about sort of the we. And that's something that gets drilled into you as well and you try and live like that.
0: Because that's something that's interesting. This is a sort of whisper of the we becoming more important than the you. And really, if you think about the last really thirty years, it's all about the being the been all about the individual and the you. Do you sense a similar kind of moving back towards an idea of perhaps not the collective though? I think that that's part of it, but a sense of community. We're all in this
1: together. I think that the whole period of neoliberalism that thirty years has um, infected people's. Thinking, all of our thinking, and we get we keep being told that you know we're individuals and that that's a wonderful thing, which of course it is. But there's no reason to conflate, um, you know, being an individual or or to say by being an individual we're not part of a, a bigger collective and. It's actually a more sophisticated idea, uh, the idea of people doing things together and choosing as individuals to do things together. So I reckon we're going to see a change. And I think so also because of social media where people will miss that feeling of togetherness that you only actually get when you are together face to face and often together in a big group. And I reckon that the 1970s big protests will become the new cool again.
0: Well, I guess we had the Women's March, didn't we, at the beginning
1: of this year, which is the biggest um, Women's March since I think the 1970s. We did. We did see that. And I think that young people will enjoy that type of togetherness. And it's sort of this like power is such a nebulous thing in a way, but when you are with a big group, you do get that feeling of power. And so um, that feeling can't be, you know, uh, you know, created in other ways. So I I think this will become something that's more popular.
0: Mm. One of the things you very quickly became famous for, I'd say it was almost in your first week that you became famous. Three hours actually. three, three, Three hours. Um, was the power of your plain speaking. The fact that when you're asked a question, you don't do what we've become so used to hearing, which is people kind of smoothing their way past the, uh, the answer. Um, Can you remind us of what happened in those first three
1: hours? Well, actually, I'll tell you what happened in the week before because I knew I was going to be the secretary and this 7.30 report interview was set up sometime beforehand. And I've got experience in the media, but not much really compared to all of a sudden you're elevated to a job where you're representing, you know, 2 million workers, not the, you know, 12,000 I was representing beforehand. So it's a huge step up. And, you know, the very first test is this 7.30 report interview and Lee Sales is formidable too. So they sent me off to media training and we spent, um, you know, a day, uh, you know, learning the techniques and really the techniques were trying to get me to unlearn everything that I knew as a union official. And that's... You're always standing up in front of groups of people and having to tell them the truth. And that's your job. And you treat that seriously. And sometimes it's not what people want to hear, but it's your your job to tell them what the truth is and then work out, okay, what are we going to do from that truth? And then all of a sudden you're learning, oh, there's pivoting and there's like deflecting and all of these other things. And I thought, oh, I don't know about this. And so anyway, oh, I, I got a I got elected into the position and that's a big day in itself. And so, you know, and all of a sudden you're the secretary and you're sitting in front of all the other union leaders at the executive, as the ACTU executive. So that's all the other leaders of all the other unions. You get through the day, you know, there's a big group photo and they, they bundle me off in a taxi off to the you know, off to the ABC studios in Melbourne. And I get there and then they send you off to the makeup artist and I say, look, I don't want any makeup. And she says, no, you've got, to, you've got to wear makeup. Everyone has to wear makeup. So I sort of agreed to that. I didn't really want to, but I did. And she kept going and going and going. And I thought, this like before me, I became someone else. And I thought, just forget about that. Concentrate on what you've got to do. And they take you to the studio. And it's such a disembodying experience. It's like this little room and you've got a camera in front of you. And Lee sales appeared like a hologram, like in, in the camera. And I'm looking at her, and you, you're wired up, and you're by yourself, and, and you wait. I waited literally ten minutes, and of course, in that time, you're nervous. Like to be honest, I was nervous. Mm. Um, you know, you're performing for for you know two million working people. So when the interview happened, um, we we you know got through the interview, and I walked out of it saying, "Well, that was fantastic. That was fine. There was no problem." Actually, um, you know, one of our media um, people from the ACTU did look quite pale um, when I think, <laughs> only retrospectively. And I went off to um, a dinner that we were having with other union leaders at, as part of the executive and you know the transition with the leadership. I got there and then everyone's phones were going off, like everyone's phones. And I didn't, didn't, to me, when I walked out of it, think that what I'd said was really remarkable because it was just sort of the truth. Um, so, what had you said that had set the phones ringing? Well, <laughs> Lee Sales asked me whether I believed in the rule of law, and I said yes. And I, I think it was like a jab, you know, and she was setting me up for the for the for the um, punch that came, but I didn't realize at that time that's what she was doing. And then she said, well, what about all this terrible law-breaking of the CFMEU, you know, do you always believe that? I said, well, I believe, you know, if the law is unjust, that it's okay to break it. And that, you know, caused massive outrage. Um, but that's the fundamental basis of being a social, someone who believes in social justice and social change. And the whole union movement and everything we've achieved has been based on breaking unjust laws. It's always been illegal to go on strike. And that's how we got the eight hour day. It's how we got, you know, so many things. That's how know, women massively. got the vote. <laughs> all of it, all of it. And so, you know, I thought that that was, you know, fairly common sense thing to say. But of course, conservative media and... Um, and of course, the Liberal Party went crazy. But I think they did that because, they, okay, here's a new leader. Let's put her in a box straight away. Let's um, make sure that, you know, if we can get her to back down, you know, what's that going to look like to those two million people? Um, but I had no intention of backing down. I mean, a few people were giving me some advice um, otherwise, but I just wasn't. You know, I stuck to what my instincts were and what I knew was right. Of course, consulted with those other union leaders, but, um, you know, just stick to to what you know is true. And it doesn't matter if it means that, that a whole lot of other people don't like it. Everywhere I go now, it's, it's, it's strange for me because people will come up to me and talk about that. And I think, wow, it's something that happened three hours into the job and, you know, it's eight months on and still people, you know, will want to talk to me about it.
0: Well, it's because I think as many people who didn't like it, loved it because A, you spoke the truth and we hear that so rarely now, particularly in those kind of very weird situations, which interviews inevitably are, even an interview is, you know, like this one is an artificial situation. So to hear the unvarnished truth is extremely, um, well, it's refreshing. And I also think very strongly that when you Are prepared to tell the truth to an audience. It's the ultimate in respecting that audience. Whereas the pivoting, deflecting is disrespectful to the audience.
1: I totally agree with that. Absolutely agree to that. And I I, I agree because that's also my experience. And that when you're in a difficult situation, which you usually are every single day as a union official, um, you've got to workers, working people, ordinary people will smell bullshit. They yeah. will. And it's like, if you try and pretend to be anything other than yourself, they'll also pick that up as well. So, I guess because I've been doing that day to day for 24 years, you're not going to undo it. And I've got no intention of undoing it. I think it's you know the right way to behave.
0: I was going to ask you, where do you get that um, strength of being yourself? Because I think that a great many people and I suspect perhaps women are often more vulnerable to this because we don't see as many other women in in positions of um, clout, though we are, it is improving now, but slowly, slowly, slowly. It's very easy for women to think, oh, I ought to do it the way these other people are telling me. And you have partially explained that, you know, it's this, training you've had through the union movement and also I suspect the sense of responsibility you feel to your the people you represent that you are not going to be anything other than yourself but what else what in your background in your growing up in who you were as a as a, a, a you know child helped you to develop
1: this inner conviction that you will be you um I've never been someone who's fitted into a box very easily, Um, well, probably ever, and I've never been sort of, you know, part of this gang or that gang Um, other than now I feel I'm obviously part of a big trade union family, but I've never sort of, um, you know, fitted into the gender boxes or what you are meant to do as a woman sometimes, even from a young age, and so, you know, throughout your life at various times, you get, you know, challenged on that. Um, and, you know, people say things and people say things that aren't nice. Like, you know, kids don't say nice things in playgrounds. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I sort of got to a point, and I, I'm not sure when it was, might have been my early 20s, but really probably late 20s in the end, where I just thought, well, this is who I am and that's it. And I don't care what people think. Like, mm. I don't. And that, uh, um, I think I live a lot in my in my head as well and so I'm not thinking about projecting other than anything other than you know my thoughts actually. And so I've not ever been one for, um, for, for makeup, of course, but if anyone wants to do that, that's fine too. But it's just not something that I've, um, been aware of, um, in a way. And so I've always, um, been a very physically active person. So with sports, so very comfortable with my body, um, and martial arts for a long time as well. You're a black belt in Taekwondo. Yeah. And Kung Fu. Yeah. And so, um, I think that teaches you an inner stillness as well. So when you're faced with a fight, like a literal fight about knowing how to be calm and that becomes normal as well. And yeah, in the end, I've just thought, well, I'm I'm myself and that's it. I've seen, um, uh, especially, you know, younger women that when they started out in the trade union movement. And I'm sure that I, I was guilty of this to some degree too. either be who men want them to be uh, and sometimes that can be an over version of, of, of who they actually are. Mm. Um, or um, try and be like men in a way that it, speaking loudly and, and adopting the way that certain men were. And it was really in the end, um, you didn't get respect either way because you weren't being yourself, and uh, people were seeing you through a lens that wasn't you. And I've I learnt too from um, difficult circumstances, um, being a union organizer, that in the end, working people did respect you um, for your commitment to them and um, uh, how much you're going to stand by their side in the hard times and all everything else in the end disappears. They mm-hmm. couldn't care whether you had three heads. So when, I was really interested when
0: you said you live a lot in your head because what that sounds to me like is I, my perception of a lot of women, and certainly I've done this in the past too, is that we're always wondering what other people are thinking about us. We we, we live almost in in two ways. We live inside our own uh, sense of who we are, but there's this hyper-consciousness of what other people are thinking about who we are. And it sounds like you missed out on that that bothersome and useless second consciousness of always wondering,
1: am I doing this in a way that's going to meet with approval. Yeah, I think that's quite insightful. Actually, um, that's probably true. It's not, in t- you know, we all to some degree would have that, but I think I just lost that early on. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a lovely story about when you were a child. And I mean, you 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 you're you're not a Bollinger Bolshe. You, you you've not swaned in from a private school into running a union. You come from quite a you know ordinary working class family, went to Carlingford High School. Um, and there's a lovely story about you when you were about 10 years old and you wanted to play soccer. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I was really good at soccer. Um, and the uh, coach, the school coach at the primary school's primary school thought I was too. And you know, I would just turn up to the training and do the training, but there was only boys' teams because back then, I'm 46 now, I'm sure things have changed now, I bloody hope they have, but um, they didn't have girls' soccer. And so um, I would just train with the boys and then later on, I got two younger brothers. My my brothers would play and I'd turn up and I'd train with them too and I found that um, the coaches, you know, dropped any opposition to it because you just became, I guess, one of the boys in a way. You were just, you know, you were competing at their level. Um, but, uh, the school decided that, you know, we weren't going to have that. Um, and they, I guess they overruled the, the teacher involved and said, no, well, you know, she can't play. And I thought, well, that's not fair. And I went home and I asked my brother if I could borrow his school uniform, which I did. And I turned up the next day in shorts and a shirt and lined up in the boys line, said, I want to play soccer. Um, I didn't really think through, Um, you know, how everyone else would see that. But uh, yeah, it didn't go down too well. So you didn't get to play soccer? I didn't get to play soccer at that age. Later on, I did. Um, Later on, I was in the, yeah, I was in the Sydney women's team um, when I was 21. And I only stopped playing actually about um, four years ago when I broke my leg. Oh, well, it comes to
0: us all, I suppose. But was it something about your family, your father, your mother that gave you that, I don't know, sort of, doggedness, like I'm not just going to take no for an answer. I'm going to, if it's not fair, I'm going to fight it.
1: They say to me that I was always um, stubborn and always hated injustice. They say that and I take I take what they say has been true, but I guess you don't have any external perception of that. You're just being yourself. Um, and, I mean, when I was 14... Um, one of my good friends decided to become a vegetarian and I spent the whole day just making jokes about her. And she said, have you ever thought about what that is? And growing up in the suburbs of Sydney, I didn't know what a farm is. What did you know about a farm or cows? And I said, no, I hadn't thought about it. And then I did think about it and I thought about it deeply. And I looked at that bit of you know chops, which we would have every night. But that is actually that's a cow and I stopped eating meat and I haven't eaten, eaten meat since. I was 14 then and I don't, it's not a big ideological stance for me. It was a decision I made and I've just stuck to it. Mm.
0: But that thinking deeply that developed early, if you're doing that at 14, you followed things through. You don't just take the superficial or the common view of whatever it is. You You—you do question, well, why do I have that belief? What's behind that belief? You know, and can i can i justify it all the way to the kind of beginning of it is that something you do to
1: this day well, I went on to study philosophy, so... um I'm at Quarry University. I did, so... I went to Quarry too. There you go. <laughs> They're responsible philosophies. They are. Um, there wasn't many books in my house. My um, father wasn't a good reader. My youngest brother was dyslexic. We had... The books I remember were the ones that when the Jehovah's Witnesses came and they visited and they gave, gave those... There was a um, volume of... I just remember they were yellow. And so I read those, but we didn't have a lot of books. Um, but... Uh, of course at school and at the library there was. And so I would, um, you know, disappear into that world. Like I'm sure as a lot, a lot of people do. Um, and I was really good at, uh, English literature. That's what I was good at, at school and, and history and got into university. And, you know, like many people was the first in my family to go. And my parents said to me, what are you studying? I said, oh, arts. I said, oh, we didn't realize you were that good at painting. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, the good thing about Macquarie is you got to choose a whole lot of different topics. And so it was just random that I filled in, you know, my first year with, with a philosophy topic. I didn't know what philosophy was. I didn't know, mind you, what much of the other stuff was either. I was doing in English literature and uh, I was really good at it. I just found it very easy. And um, so I continued with it and they asked me to stay and um, study honours, which I did, and and I loved it. I love the, um, I guess it goes back to what you're saying about, you know, just the internal thinking and, and questioning. So I learnt, um, you know, all the techniques about that, I guess, and I enjoy um, the... Um, turning things around, looking at them in different perspectives, being able to go back to the root cause of, of, of what is this and how do you justify it, um, that type of, of logic. Um, then again, I was terrible at uh, mathematics, but people say that... Um, pure maths and philosophy are actually very um, aligned. So I don't know, maybe I just didn't pay enough attention. <laughs> <laughs> I was hopeless at maths as well. And did English literature
0: at Macquarie I just couldn't or- see the
1: point of maths. Like I couldn't see the point of lear- learning this or learning that. i turn up to my um, class in um, year 11 and say to my teacher, and it was the, you know, bottom class of maths because mm. I didn't bother. And I just, and I you know, you picked that those last two units knowing you were going to drop them. I said, look, here's the deal. Um... I won't cause any trouble. And my class was mayhem, like absolute mayhem out of control. I said, I'll sit up the back and read Shakespeare and I won't cause any trouble and you just don't worry about me. And that was the deal and that worked out fine. <laughs> and then I went to do your HSC. I sat the mass exam knowing I was going to fail it because I wasn't trying and walked out after the you know 30 minutes that you've got to before you can work, walk out
0: that shows focus that you knew what you wanted to do and what you didn't what
1: you needed to put your energy into and what you didn't need to put your energy into i think that's um i know that that's a strength i've got um i know that uh and i um try and, well, I practice it every day, but it's become a mode of operating. Mm. Um, the more you dissipate your energy uh, or your focus, the less you're going to be able to achieve about the big things you really need to achieve. And so, I, I, I learned that over the years. And then as a leader, I learnt that, that um, the people that um, are part of your team also need to know what the goals are and need to be able to see their achievable and the progress towards them. And so, uh, if you don't show that focus as a leader, you can't expect, um, you know, the whole team to uh, get behind that goal and and, and move forward. So, I, I approach everything like that. I, I like bird watching now and I think that that's something I've developed late in life or at 46, but I don't know, probably about six years ago and it's a similar thing. I get to disappear into another world like reading as it's like video games, it's the same too and focus quite literally on, you know, a bird, take mm. a picture of it.
0: Yeah. I think it's a wonderful subversive message that by deciding maths was not something you wanted to focus on and by allowing yourself to basically fail it in the HSC, you taught yourself a major life lesson because we have such a generation of parents at the moment who are obsessed with their children doing well in absolutely every subject, not recognising that in fact sometimes it's really sensible to know what you really want to do. And what you really don't want to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I guess not every kid probably always knows that. And so you wouldn't apply it as a general rule. But I think that, you know, once you do know, letting people be who they are is really important. Mm.
0: Now you're leading the union movement and... You're the first ever female secretary. Do you think that unions are as sexist as business or do you think both are changing or
1: how do you see it? There's been um, a series of really strong... Women union leaders come through our movement, and in Australia we've had that history, and not just at the ACTU level, but at various other levels. And so I guess it's you know it's unsurprising in a way that the working class movement would have that happen first, and in that particular way. Um, so. It's not like I'm treading a path, even though I'm the secretary, I'm not treading a path that's that's not been there. There's been Jenny George, Sharon Burrow and, of course, Jed Carney, the current president. Um, I can't – I know that, you know, parts of business are sexist, but I know that they're changing as well and, sure, parts of the union movement are too. And I find that a lot has to do with the culture that that is that develops. Then that does have to do with leadership and um it's very hard to develop a culture that's um, one or any culture, full stop, and easy to wreck it. Mm. And so as a leader, I'm conscious of trying to ensure that, say, at the ACTU or in, or in general in the union movement, the type of culture that we set is one that you've got to reflect as a leader. So people will look at you and say, okay, this is how a, a, a trade union leader behaves or a trade unionist behaves, and then you've got to try and stay, you know, true to that. I mean, you can't always perfectly, but... Um, um, at least you're reflecting in it, you're enforcing it. If you don't do that, you can't expect um, change to happen. Mm. Culture is often used as an excuse to keep people who are different out.
0: Um, it's been used often against women and also people from different religious and ethnic backgrounds. You don't fit the culture, it's become a kind of code.
1: Yep. I think that's very true, and I think usually cultures are unseen. They're there, and the outsider sees it, but the people that are part of that don't. And mm. so, I can even tell in workplaces once you know the the gender um, makeup gets. More towards one side, whether it be women or men, how it changes a workplace culture. Um, Not to say that there's an essentialness in men or women, but I can see that happen and how unhealthy that is. And also, um, you know, a lot of people in business talk about this now too. You don't have innovation unless you accept um, other ideas. And a thing that I learned uh, uh, when I first became leader of my union, I wanted other organisers to be just like me. And I thought, well, that's I'm a good organiser, I need to find people that are like me and what a mistake that is mm. because there's many different um, types of people that uh, get to the same outcome but with different paths and in different ways and if, unless you open your eyes to that you're making you know big mistakes and I learned by um, seeing someone that I really really respected as an organizer and thinking about how different she was um, to me and thinking well okay, it's a good thing for us to have a difference because also out of difference um, you you grow because you challenge each other with your ideas. And out of that, I know it sounds, um, you know, again, the philosopher dialectic, but it's true. Like but by different ideas, you get better outcomes. You led the Australian Services Union before you um, became head
0: of the ACTU, which was the 12,000 members, and that is a female-dominated union. And indeed, you were very closely involved in one of the most important uh, workplace decisions for a very long time, which was the um, wage case for low-paid workers, many of whom you represented with your union. And it was the first in the world, I believe, that was decided on the
1: basis that these people were underpaid because of gender bias. Yes, that's right. Actually, when I started at my union, it was sixty percent men. When I left, it was sixty percent women. So over those twenty years, I saw it completely change, and that was because of the growth of the community sector um, compared to uh, the public sector areas we had. Because I also had blue collar, entirely male areas, and mm. so I got to as a um, as a as a unionist experience like both, but. We're talking about the community sector area. That was an awesome campaign. It was. Um, it went for six or seven years, and there was times during that campaign where you really, you know, had to. Uh, look back at your strategy and say, well, we're getting anywhere. The very first rally we had, we had 300 people at it. And I look back and think, well, what lesson do you take out of that? If we had to stop then and said, well, uh, not enough people support this. Well, this isn't going to work. Rallies aren't going to work as a tactic. In the end, after seven years, we're having 5,000 people come. And so um, lesson in persistence, but also about um, building and knowing that, you know, change doesn't come and you don't build movements overnight either and you can't organise overnight. So um, that was a, a great campaign. And the change that we made was a very significant one because we was saying that some occupations were gendered because they were caring occupations. And this idea that uh, historically women have played the caring role in the family and that we undervalue um, work then that has caring elements because we haven't paid women like uh-huh. to do that. So, this is community services work, but I, the same would apply to childcare workers or aged care workers for that matter. Mm.
0: Oh, I think it to a large extent, um, extends to teachers and nurses true. who are, you know, highly trained, highly effective and horribly paid. True, true. Um, and again, we see it as women's work. And I've often felt that we almost begrudge paying for caring. Mm. There's still a a gut feel that it should be done out of love.
1: That maybe it's not even a job. It's not even a job. It shouldn't be, you know, considered a job like, uh, you know, things that you do with your hands or making things. And so unless there's an external object at the end of it, you know, it's not, not a job. No. I think we see an awful lot of that in
0: women's lives right across the board. Now, we also have a connection via Destroy the Joint, um, that hilarious night uh, after Alan Jones made his very famous comment about um, women were destroying the joint. Um, After, I believe, Julia Gillard had uh, given a small amount of money to the Pacific Leaders Forum to train women in leadership because we know that where there are more women in leadership, Thank you, Sally, for being one of those. Um, we have lower rates of domestic violence. Where there are fewer women in positions of power, there are higher rates of domestic violence right across the society. So a fairly unexceptional gift from a rich country to um, poorer nations. And uh, yet uh, Alan Jones took particular exception and said that uh, women in power were destroying the joint. He meant Gillard. He mentioned Christine Nixon. And I think he mentioned Clover Moore. He always mentions Clover Moore. It's good to see Clover Moore survives nevertheless. Um I always describe myself as a BG. You know that song. I started a joke that started the whole world laughing. Well, I sent a tweet that got people active, and you were one of the people that jumped on this idea of taking women and destroying the joint. And instead of being defensive and and in a way, allowing him to dictate the tone of the conversation, turning it around into, yeah, well, let's look at the ways in which women are destroying the joint. Let's let's, uh, find the humour in this and the absurdity in it. Tell me about what you and Jill Tomlinson and Jenna Price have done with destroying the joint.
1: Well, I think it's interesting to look at the lead up to this because in the end, this was a product of what was it, at least six months longer, maybe a year of relentless abuse that Julia Gillard was copying. And Anne Summers um, brought that out into light beforehand. She made a great speech. Yeah. And so many of us, well, women were watching what was happening and thinking, oh my God, how would I cope with that? How would I cope with that level of abuse that she's coping with? And she seemed to um, cope with it really well. And I don't like being a bystander. And I suppose a whole lot of us don't like being bystanders when you can see people being attacked and abused and for their gender. That's clearly what was happening and clear to all of us. And I, I was sort of waiting in a way maybe a lot of us were quietly by ourselves for some signal for us all to it's say. An opportunity. Yeah, like enough's enough and waiting even maybe for her to call it out for what it was. But she'd made a decision not to at this point because this was before the misogyny speech mm. that came after. we yes, it did. I know. De- de- yeah, destroy the joints. There's so, probably a connection, I suspect, between the I know, there, two. Is. Oh, I know yeah. there is. I know there is from talking to her. So... Um, they, uh, what happened is when that happened, it was almost like the, you know, the match on the very dry landscape and it just went off. Mm-hmm. And so, I I wasn't even on Twitter back in the day, so I didn't see the Twitter action. I was on Facebook and um, set up that Facebook page and It was absolutely tongue-in-cheek and it was thinking about, okay, what are all the things that we destroy just by being women? And I went off actually to watch a football game that Parramatta Eels were playing and I had notifications on my phone and it kept going off and off and off. By the end of that, there was 5,000 people that were already part of that community that... um, that, that Facebook community. And so that's now grown into a huge thing and I don't run it now. All the excellent um, women are behind the scenes doing all the work there. But we then moved on to wanting to do something about it. I, I remember we were expecting or hoping or Waiting to see if Alan Jones would apologise, and we had a big internal debate about this. Would, would an apology be good enough? Would we accept an apology? And I think the consensus was that we would. And I remember the day um, when Alan Jones did his interview, and he was wearing a pink shirt. I think too. I just just remember it, and he so hated being there, and it was meant to be the apology, and he just couldn't deliver it. Just couldn't. Full of excuses, full of you know reasons why you know he was right. And that was really when we thought, okay, that's it. We've had enough of him and everything he's done. If we don't now take a stand... And so there was a big internal debate about what to do. Um, You know, should we focus on complaints to the, you know, media regulator? Well, they're they're useless. Should we complain to Macquarie Radio? Well, he owns that, so that won't be helpful. Um, You know, and perhaps his listeners, that'll just, you know, make him even more popular for that matter. So we thought about all all these things and just use... Basic strategic thinking you would in a in a campaign. Well, what does he really care about? He cares about money. That's the reason why we all settled on. You had to go through the normal process you did when you're bringing together a group, which I'd had experience with, about debating this out, then uniting people around. No, this is the right strategy. You know, we were going to ask the sponsors to stop sponsoring his program. You were spectacularly successful at doing that. Didn't well, you? it was one of those things too where you know, it's hard to um, run those type of campaigns. And of course, the smaller um, companies decided earlier on, like the ones that were actually outraged, decide to drop off a few of them, but most of them um, didn't to start off with. But it's important to have early victories with any big campaign like that because it builds momentum and people can see it's possible to achieve. And so- Success
0: um, breeds success
1: and yes. enthusiasm. And also then people will who've been sitting back and saying, oh, this won't work or, or, you know, why would I bother giving up my time for something that's going nowhere? All of a sudden, see this train is going somewhere, so I'm getting on that train. And so we built that momentum and then people built that momentum. Um, and, we, you know, what I found amazing is that, you know, women, like a woman in a country town um, by herself, living by herself, was participating in this. You know, one of them was the person who'd agreed to you know, listen to Alan Jones in the morning and write down by hand all of the sponsors that came on the program because it was actually quite intensive to do this. And I was running a union. I didn't have time to do it. So, there was a whole team that was off doing this work. And then, you know, someone else had to research what their Facebook page was, what their phone numbers were before you we could be in, even in a position to advocate This is all volunteers, all doing this. And uh, one by one by one. And then we had the really big sponsors. And my um, favourite. Out of all of memory, out of all of this, was the Mercedes Benz yes. decided. <laughs> it's my favourite too. To take um, his Mercedes Benz off him, and I always uh, think of the Janis Joplin song. But uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Which I'm a terrible singer, but uh, yeah. yeah. But, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Yeah. My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. And. Uh, the his face on the day um, he was driven to work by his chauffeur in his Mercedes-Benz and it was the very last day he got to drive it. And, and so um, that was the, that was the sweetest part. Yeah.
0: I have to say, coming from my advertising background, I did think to myself, what on earth is Mercedes-Benz doing sponsoring that program anyway? It's not their demographic. It's not their audience. It's not the right place at all. So there was a part of me that thought somebody was just... Dying to get. Well, remember a bit of that. <laughs> he
1: started verbaling them, or he started attacking them as well, and attacked the local manager for um, what looked like the decision to d- distance themselves from him. And then it was the uh, head company in Germany that came in and backed up the local manager and said, "No, this is not acceptable behaviour. Whether it be Germany, Australia, or anywhere, we're not accepting it." That's great,
0: mm. but there's something else that you had an influence on by the sound of it. Julia Gillard has told you that her misogyny speech was possible because of the Destroy the Joint movement that you were very much a part of, you know, grabbing hold of and making happen. Tell us about that story.
1: Oh, it's just that uh, the day that she gave it, um, we were still in the middle of just this massive fight back from Alan Jones and uh, all of his friends that were, you know, ranting every day about how terrible we were. And it was, in a way, um, you know, it was a big challenge because I was worried about my union too and I was worried about all the things that I've 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 got to worry about. I didn't want, you know, this to mean that there that there could be any my members would be hurt because of what i decided to do. And um uh you know, he's got that microphone and everyone else there has got that microphone. And so they went their hardest and I was getting death threats. I was getting letters written to me saying, we're going to come and behead you, like all of that stuff, which I hadn't dealt with before. And the police came and visited us several times. So I was living in that world and I got a call from someone very senior in in, um, Julia's office and said, have you seen what the boss has just done? I said, oh, no, because I was thinking, well, God, you know, what about, you know, what I've got to deal with? And and he said, I think you need to look at what the boss has done. And I think, um, you know, uh, he's the one who said it's it's because of, of what you guys have been doing. And I didn't know what he meant. And I went home and I watched the misogyny speech. So that was that was good. Tell us what you believe in, the core philosophy that drives you. I believe in fairness and justice. And that, you know, people can say that means different things to different people, but I don't know. I think, you know, I do believe that essentially everyone is equal and where you've got, um, you know, systems that, you know, take that away from people or take away people's um, dignity, that that's an injustice and that you should you should do what you can to um, make the world a better place and ensuring everyone has dignity. And I really do believe that change is possible too because going back to what i said before i could believe in the power of the collective and people acting together and choosing to act together is very powerful so um i just you know have this burning belief in that and uh belief that you know eventually as human beings will say we've had enough of unfairness and injustice and we're going to have a better world mm. i'm thinking like this um that you can't last in a job that I'm doing forever. Or if you do, you're not giving it your all. Um, But I don't think you can. And, you know, I've watched the people before me. It's a really tough job. And so I've come into it knowing that. And so I've, I've got this idea in my head, if I can do this for, you know, six to eight, at the most 10 years and give it 110%, like you're so lucky. It's such a privilege to be in that position. If I can just put everything into it for that period of time, then I can, I don't know, go bird watching somewhere or, you know, kind of move to the south coast of New South Wales and, you know, on the edge of a national park. That's what I'd like to do.
0: So it's not politics? You're not aiming to be the next female Prime Minister? I'm not.
1: I know my job is big and what we've got in front of us is what we want to do is ambitious. And that's where I put all my energies. I don't think about after that, other than I think somehow... um, I, I won't have to get on as many planes. Thank you, Sally. That was absolutely fascinating. That I was really... fun.
0: Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lip Proud. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.